couldn't go in and remix it. You couldn't go in and overdub. It was just mono one shot from beginning to end. So he used to do that with songs too. So Bob and Frank produced Silhouettes as a song to shop around. They brought it to Cameo, one of their R&B groups that in, in, uh, in uh, Cameo Parkway in Philadelphia. And they liked it so much, they simply released the demo, which at the time was unheard of. Because independent producers, indie producers were non-existent. So they were the first two on the planet. They really were, if anybody wants to do any research. And after that, a lot of them came after that, but they were the first ones. So uh, I sent them acetates with me. See, I did the, I did me and, and the piano on tape, and then they made the acetates and we sent them to Bob. And then Bob called me up and he came down to, I was a senior in high school, and he signed me to recording concert. I can play the record for you if you want me to play the, the first record. I no, made. no, because you know why? I don't want to have a takedown. We start playing audio, it always happens, and we have some sort oh, of- Oh, really? Facebook, uh, you remember, we're still Facebook Live, and, and that's why I try not to play, unless you play it with the guitar, or- you know, Oh, no, 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 let's not risk it. Play no, play let's not risk it. No, let's not risk it. I know, I know what you're saying. We will not risk it. So, so the, I went in, and on my first record with, with uh, Bob producing it, I wrote all the songs. My background group was the Four Seasons, Frankie Valley, Four Seasons. Yes. And then they did four tracks with me. And, uh, and then about six months later, uh, they came out with Sherry and became the huge group that they became. So, but you know, my first background group was Four Seasons. So the Four Seasons was your background group? Yes, at one time, yeah. <laughs> yes, at one time. Isn't that cool? Yeah. So that was it. So that was the first thing. So that's how it evolved. So taking us now, we're into the mid-60s, I presume, right? So that goes way back to the very, very beginning of mine. And I never wanted to, and then the art thing, you know. Uh, I was always a very talented uh, artist, designer, painter. And um, uh, I decided, uh, I, came to, I decided at one point that it was time for me to go back to school because my recording career had, had not taken off. And I had spent a couple of years in New York City doing it. So I went back to art school and took a couple of years of art school because I figured, well, you know, I gotta have something. I hate that something to fall back on, but I was making zip and there was, you know, none of my records were hits. And so I just went back to art school. And then of course I came back to New York City. So, so, so that, so, okay. So then we're going to the, into the mid to late sixties. You went back to art school, art and yes. design you go? Did you go to art and design? Where'd you go? No, I went to Yale, to art, art school at Yale for a couple of years. Okay. I, I went back to live with my mom and dad. Going back, it's like the guys now, the girls now go back to live with mom and dad. Is your daughter going back leaving, to live with mom and dad? Is your right, daughter going the back to live coming back? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I took off, I couldn't get out of the house soon enough and then I, I ended up going back when I was going to school. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a lot easier back then to do it because things were a lot cheaper. You can make it on your own. Do you know, do I tell you, when I went to school, my father wrote out a check for my tuition for the first year. He, he wrote it out. $2,000. Right. He paid it one shot. He paid it one shot. And it wasn't That's even, a, it wasn't, wait a minute. Lenny, it wasn't even the financial burden. It wasn't something that they had to think about getting student loans or something. He, I said, I didn't accept it. Art school, how much? 
Run out the check here. Give it to the administration people. Good for you. Like that. Now, I'm not saying it was 50 cents or $50, but it was enough so that my father, and I don't remember exactly how much, but it was enough that my father could sit down, who was not a wealthy man, he was a successful businessman, he sat down and wrote out the check. I feel so bad for kids today. So bad for kids today. Telling me, I feel bad too. And that wasn't just in Connecticut at that one particular school, that was all over. Quinnipiac College was for free. You know Quinnipiac, they had the Quinnipiac uh, polls and everything in Hampton, East Hampton. You could, that was a, a state school. <laughs> you could go there for nothing. Yeah, I know they changed. Yeah, well, they changed all that later on. You know that. So yeah. they, knew they could make money. That yeah. all changed. Just like when they made the bridges all over the all over New York, they said, "Oh, we're just gonna charge just till we pay it back." Well, <laughs> yeah, I know. They yeah. pay that bridge back already. Come on now. Yeah. Well, they're building more than me. So, art and design, the whole thing. You moving forward. When do you come back to music again? And how does that find you again? Well, I never left music. <coughs> That's what I'm saying. I, always, I was always writing. Because that inspiration was always there. What can I say? And so um, I never stopped. And when I moved to New York City, back to New York City, I got a, a piano in my apartment right away. You know, just that was one of the first things. I got a secondhand piano right, right away so I could write. And um, I, like I said, I can't read music, but... I can write, I write, and I put it down on tape recording, and then I have somebody transpose it into a sheet music or whatever. <coughs> so, <coughs> excuse me, I came back. Uh, okay, I came back when uh, oh, Bob Reno, who was the A&R guy at Phillips at the time, was back. <laughs> I had written a song called Outward Bound, and I... And I was coming back to New York City and I just dropped off the acetate to Phillips Records here, which is Phillips, you know, uh, Mercury Phillips. And uh, Bob Peter was the A&R man. And he listened to it and, uh, and I was, had just arrived back in New York City and he said, I want to record you. <laughs> I said, okay. He said, you got another side? I said, yeah, I have another side. So we had recorded another side and put it on Phillips. But right at that point, right at that point, Bob Reno left Phillips to go to A&R at, um, at uh, Vanguard Records and started disco. Remember Vanguard Records? They had a disco sure, I remember Van Pizzay, all those bands were on there. There you go. So Bob Reno signed my record, released it, left Phillips Mercury, went to Vanguard, to start a disco thing. And, you know, Bob eventually had bits on Midtown, Midtown International, Carol Douglas, Fly Robin Fly, Silver Convention, you know, so he's very successful. And so, uh, and the guy, Jerry, whatever his name is, the guy who took over his position at uh, Phillips Mercury, I forgot his last name on purpose. He didn't like the record, he didn't like me, he didn't want to record me, and he, Gave me a release. So that was that. But I was back in New York City and I was recording again. So, uh, and then. Were you going out? See, now here's the question now. As this was going on, you're recording, were you being influenced going out to certain discotheques at that time? Absolutely. Oh, tell absolutely. us, yeah, tell us <laughs> nighttime. <laughs> well, there's a couple of things that came to. Well, 
Then I was, I became art director for uh, the music division of MGM at the time, there was six, on Sixth Avenue. And in the, in the process of, Donnie Kirshner, Kirshner Records, Calendar Records, had a distribution deal, a print deal with MGM. And uh, I was sent over there to do, to get a contact with those people to do sheet music covers and song folios and stuff like that, art director stuff. And while I was there, there was this guy, um, Wally Gold, very famous guy, had produced, oh, please, Barbara Streisand, you know, as your own. very, very famous, but not, you know, Edie Gourmet, but, but a pop stuff, popular music stuff. A very, very sweet man, very nice man. And he, um, one day, I, I just cornered him, and I said, oh, by the way, Wally, you know, I said, I write songs. Would you like to hear any? And he said, uh, oh, you write songs, Dave. Okay, well, baby, you know, so I sat down, I played him the songs, and he looked at me like he couldn't believe it. And he said, let's go into Donnie and let's play some something with Donnie. You know, Donnie Kirshner with Kirshner Music, all those hits that his company had. He had rock concert, he had Kirshner Records, he had Kansas, so huge. He had the TV show. And I sat down, I played him for Donnie Kirshner, and he just nodded to Wally. He said, you want to record him? You got a deal. <laughs> so I went and <clears throat> I recorded, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> four songs for Wally Golden Krishna Records, singles. <clears throat> the first one came out. Now, here you go, talk about timing is everything, Lenny. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The first single came out, Honey Bear, which you can go to YouTube and listen to now. It's on YouTube. And, um, uh, Right in that time, Donnie decided he wanted to leave RCA that was distributing his label, you know, as a distribution, and go with CBS Columbia for Kansas. Because they figured RCA wasn't strong enough and Kansas was going to be a huge group. So they wanted to go with Columbia, who was very experienced with rock groups, you know, uh, you know, the rock big band booths, rock groups. So, uh, so they changed distributors. Right after, right as my record came out. Damn, you got caught in the middle. Of course, the same thing with Bob Reno. The same thing happened, same fucking thing caught happened. In the middle. Caught right in the middle of the changeover. Yes, it's, it was wild, it was wild. And it was the second time, like, it happened with Bob Reno. And so let me just stop and explain this to everybody. When I met, when he got changed with the, the changeover, what happens is when an A&R person who you believed in what you did and signed right. you, is no longer there or they do a lateral position to move to another record label and they leave you behind, you find out the new staff is not feeling what you're doing. You either get shoved. No. They, even if they were feeling what I was doing, Lenny, they didn't want any part of the Right, old, they didn't want any part of it. The old shit, you know, sweep them all out. They didn't want any part People of it. Get rid of guy, DC, David Charles LaRue. Get rid of his record. Get, it, get him out. There you go. It was David LaRue at that point. David LaRue. So it got rid of me. So, and then I said to Wally, he went, he went over to Columbia and I said to Wally, I said, uh, what do you think? He said, oh, he said, Donnie's decided you're too popish and you're too blah, 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 and you'll stack in, because they were envisioning me as like a new Neil Stacker or Elton John or whatever. And they said, uh, no, 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 no. He said, we're, we're, with Kansas, we're going to concentrate in the rock thing, because he had his rock concert show, television, ABC TV with millions of viewers. And I understood that. So they weren't interested in re-signing me. 
for the Columbia distribution. So then that, that was just about the time where I started, I was starting to go out dancing. And I had, uh, I had uh, been working for, I, I, people think this, I had been working for John Lennon on a few Lance Bases when he did his uh, Walls and Bridges album and rock and roll. And I had become very friendly with um, uh, his secretary at the time, May Pang. And his personal assistant, Tony King, who you must know Tony King, because Tony King then went to disco. So Tony King. And then uh, John went back to Yoko. It's an interesting story. It's a true story. John went back to Yoko. That's why we and, call it True House Stories. <laughs> and and, uh, and, and May Pang was devastated, as you can well imagine. Who do you go to after you go to John Lennon? If you fool around with John Lennon, John Lennon's girlfriend for two years. So uh, she was so in love with him. And so she was totally devastated. And so then Tony King's friend, David Nutter. Now David's brother, Tommy Nutter, was the fashion designer for all the English groups. All of them, the Beatles, you name it. Gary, the pacemakers. David Nutter was the guy who did all those costumes that everything looked like when groups you saw just alike. So David Nutter and Tony King and I, they'd come down to the apartment. I, I, I'd mix, make some dinner or whatever. And then we'd all go out dancing around the corner to the limelight. And David Rodriguez was the DJ. David Rodriguez at limelight. You've heard of him. David Rodriguez at the limelight. And so uh, just to get May's mind off things, you know, just distract her. Then I met Steve D'Aquisto. And Steve D'Aquisto was the record promotion man. And uh, he's, we got along famously, and him and he has boyfriend Albert, and, and he's the one who dragged me down to meet Nicky Siano and David Mancuso and Larry Levant. And so I started going, running around with Steve DiQuisto, but you had to get me out. Let me tell you, I wasn't about to go out by myself. So I had Steve DiQuisto forcing me out, and then I had May Pang and Tony King get me out. And so I started going out to all the clubs. And then I had a friend, Bruce Schaub, who belonged to 12 West. And uh, the truck stop and a couple of other ones. Then, you know, so I started out going to the gay clubs. And then uh, I met Richie Kesar and Steve DiQuisto was playing at Hollywood. And so I went to start going to Le Jardin and uh, Roundtable and all those clubs and all the uptown clubs. And so I really became embroiled with the disco scene and the disco music. So that's, and this is while I was still working as an art director. So out every night, I was a, I was a mess. I was a wreck. I couldn't even get to work in the morning because I'd be up all night with Steve DeGuisto. <laughs> and Haven, it was- I presume that was at Haven, right? At the Haven? Yes. yes. So all of them, you know, at the 10th floor, Steve Burroughs and the Steve Floor. I was very fortunate to get to catch all the, the landmark clubs at the same time, boom, 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 because I just ran with the right, you know, Steve because got into all of them. <laughs> Steve, what would I do without Steve? Steve is the one who came up with the idea of cathedrals, by the way. We'll get to so, that in a moment. We'll get to that in a yeah. moment. So, so that's it. So that's how disco started to affect me. It started to change my life. And I remember, I, and I had, at that point, after the Wally Gold thing, and Kirshner pff, fell through. I said, this is it, this is it. 
<laughs> I was making good money doing art direction. I was working for John Lennon and Janice Ian and Ten Wheel Drive and a whole bunch of people and enjoying, loving every minute. Uh, you know, it wasn't a, 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 a second job. It was just, I loved doing it. And so uh, what happened was that uh, I had given up any idea, any dream of recording. So that, so, but yeah, this is, this is what you gotta say, never say never. Oh yeah. Cause I, I went out with, I went out to 12 West. I can remember it. Tommy Severis was playing. And I went with my friend, Bruce Schaub, Ron Vaughn, bless his soul. And so we went dancing. And you know, the, the punch at 12 West, I mean, you didn't know what you were drinking, you know. You just went and just turned it over, you know, to the drugs. And, and whatever. What, so the drugs, what was the drugs at that time like in 12 West? Like what was, was what was- 12 West, well, you could get, you could get uh, mescaline there. And they had like a little corner where they had the punch and everything and all the dealer. You get the purple mescaline or the green mescaline and you get the punch was hallucinogenic. And, uh, and they also had a good cocaine connection there if you wanted cocaine. And um, so the, everything. Garbage. Everything. Was poppers part of a big poppers thing? and ethyl chloride? Yes, definitely, definitely, definitely. So, it's so we'll paint us the picture. You're going out that night. Tom Savarese is one of the big DJs in New York at that time. And at that 12, time, sure. Yeah, Twelve West was one of his spots. So, tell us. He'd rip off his shirt. <laughs> Show us. Paint the picture of the night because people need to know that. What oh that was please, like. yeah, yeah, Tommy. Uh, he was very slim and trim at the time. Harry Chubbs, handsome guy, handsome Italian guy, and he really had a, he really had a a karma about him. He just studied excitement, and uh, and so he was one of the old time guys, just terrific, lots of attitude, and uh, so the place was uh, and by three o'clock in the morning it was so it was the same thing with the loft, same thing with the loft. They made acoustics. You never knew what you were going to get, and so or how high you were going to. Same thing with the Paradise Garage. Ah. <laughs> okay, here we go. Um, so I don't know how I survived those days because I used to get so high. You know, so you high. know why you survived? It's you part of my resume. Yeah, you know why? Because you're you're here to tell us the story. That's why. I guess I am. Know. I'm the one who lives to tell, huh? That's right. You're the bitch that has it I'm all the time. So in any case, I uh, uh, I'm there one night with Bruce. Dancing. It's three o'clock in the morning. We're both just ripped to the. We said ripped to the tits, and and uh, Tommy segues into "Love to Love You, Baby," and it stops me. Now it stopped me for a number of reasons. I had the first time I had ever heard. Of course, I was very high, you know, and and but and I was used to long records from the you know the Doors. Excuse me. Uh, you know, and the guy, the beat, I was used to 18-minute records. They weren't new to me. The rock stuff, Jimi Hendrix, they would go on and on, Cream, Air Clapton, <clears throat> Led Zeppelin, they'd go on and on for 18 minutes. And so, but an 18-minute pop record, dance record or something, that was very unique at the time. It was just totally unique. And, and uh, listening to it, and then the way they reduced it, the way Georgia produced it and reduced the strings and then introduced the strings and the bass line and then the drum and the, the, bit, the, the, the way that he reconstructed it and built it and, and then it, it dipped again musically 
and it moved the dance floor musically. It was a difficult record to dance to right away because you weren't used to something like that. Lots of places declared the dance floor lips living. It really did. And I'm standing there and I'm saying, maybe I should make this kind of record. Because <laughs> all my life I had been trying to be something that I was not. I was trying to be a Bobby Rydell. I was trying to be a Dion. I was trying to be a Paul Simon. I was trying to be a, a Neil Sedaka. I was, people were just, I would sign with them with my music and then they tried to make me into something that I simply was not. And even though some of the records were very good, I can look back at them now and understand why I should be thankful that they didn't really click were huge hits because that really wasn't me. You know what I'm saying, Lenny? Yeah, Lenny. No, no, I understand that. You I understand? understand. And, and that, that stuff, I mean, that as that much that. as I can say, as much as I can say that the Wally Gold record, Honey Bear, and Cold on Us go to the whole session was probably the best record I have ever made, bar none. The arrangement was exactly how I conceived it. The vocals were perfect. It was all one take vocals. The records were produced masterfully by Wally Gold. And as good as they were, they still weren't the essence of what I was as an individual. And I think that's very important. Janice Ian, who's a very good friend of mine, to this day, she's friendly with me. Uh, she, working with her, on her album covers and whatever, I, I could not, I was awed by her honesty and inspired by her honesty. <clears throat> she was fearless with her lyrics. And, and I said to myself, I said, maybe that's, I was always writing about true love and about boyfriends and girlfriends. And I said, maybe I should start being more honest with what's inside me, lyrically. Like Janice, <laughs> like Janice. Well, was and that she knows it, and Janice knows it too, because you know what? She, she, I was just recently in touch with her and, she, and we talked reminiscent. And she said, oh, I knew all along that you were impressed with my honesty. She said, I could tell as soon as I heard Cathedrals. So in any case, though. But was it, the, was it the, the sexual freedom, everything happening around you? Yes, yes. How important yes. was that? How important was Very that? important, very important. Uh, but I have to let you know, I'm not being coy or, you know, I wasn't a part of that. I was a witness to it. Okay. That's fine. So, but just explain that. Explain. You know, and so I was describing what I was seeing, not so much of what my life had become with the trucks and with the sex in the back rooms and the and the drugs and the and the, the bathhouses and everything. I was not a part of that. But I was aware of it and I saw it all around me. And so that's what I was writing about. And it wasn't only gay. It was straight. I mean, you'd go to these straight discos in Brooklyn and Queens or whatever, or at the Bronx, it was heterosexual, but it was the same kind of sexual promiscuity that existed in the gay community. Looking for Mr. Goodbar, remember that movie? Yes, sir. That was what it was like. Yes, it was females. Look up that movie, people, looking for Mr. Goodbar. Looking for Mr. Goodbar. And people think it was just a gay thing. No, it was, a, it was a 70s thing. It was a sex, drug, and disco thing that across the board, across the board. And so uh, unfortunately, it did get a gay reputation, but you know, it wasn't, it wasn't only gays. It wasn't only gays. And so uh, uh, Studio 54 had a smattering of gay clientele. It was all straight. 
it was all men fucking women in the in the bathrooms in the balcony getting blowjobs. It was it was not a gay club. Studio was a straight club, and it was all boys and girls trying to get laid to hook up and get laid okay. with a with a with a peppering of gays, Lenny. It wasn't such a good, so that's what I was talking about. That's what I was talking about. So, so you're visualizing, you're recording all this and you're, you're seeing it like a camera and you're now going home and writing music. Well, so then I'm, so then I'm, so let me wrap this up. So then I, I say, well, I, and maybe I should do that. See, I had been learning, learning a lot about myself. And, uh, and so I had, uh, and the drugs had a great deal to do with it. I didn't pick up my first drug until 1973, 74. I was like a sober guy, coffee and Chesterfield cigarettes. Not one, I, not even a beer. <laughs> and when I picked up uh, drugs and alcohol, uh, it was one night at a party, at a Halloween party, at a friend of mine's, and I did cocaine and weed and quaaludes and poppers all on the same night. Oh my and God, I, you must have been a hot mess. Oh, please. I, and, so, and so I remember, it was a penthouse over there on, it was a brownstone there in uh, Park, um, Park Avenue. It wasn't Park Avenue. Party was it? It is Park Avenue, very wealthy guy. And I can remember being on the floor in front of the fireplace, rocking back and forth, saying, oh, I found it. I found the secret of the universe. I found the answer to all my problems. I've seen That first experience of all those drugs, I it was like the universe had opened up to me, and that also changed my life, as well because I I had a I was fearless now I was like fearless, and and Janice see I Janice would always smoke weed she'd always be smoking dope, and and uh, uh, I I would never touch it and then that one night now that one pivotal night that changed my consciousness long before my consciousness was raised that raised my consciousness. That it, that drug-induced experience. So then, and then after that it was like no hose hard for a few years. But then, uh, uh, so then I'm with Steve DeQuisto, and we're at a week or two later. We're at uh, the loft, David McCusso's loft. And you know what we used to do? That's where I met Larry Levin. First of all, we I, I just go to Nikki's gallery, and then we used to go to David McCusso's. And then when when Larry opened the the loft, hold on, hold, get... on hold on, hold on. La Garages later, but let's talk about gallery and Mancuso. Back and forth, yeah, right <laughs> wait, across the street. Wait, wait, wait. Tell the people, describe it. Like if you were taking me to this place, you were saying Burger King and McDonald's. Give us the idea of what this really was, because people remember they didn't get a chance. They know about this. They read about yeah. it. But you were on that dance floor in the early part of 99 Prince Street. I certainly Tell was. Tell us all about it. Well, the loft was, uh, it was primarily gay, but it was mixed. It was mixed. And those clubs, both of them. Now, uh, and the loft, it, see, this was, this was, this was, you know, David Mancuso and Nikki were both gay DJs, but their parties weren't exclusively gay. And with the loft, with David, that was primarily heterosexual. It was, it was, uh, street kids uh, from the Bronx and Brooklyn and, and uh, the Lower East Side. It was boys and girls who wanted to get together and dance the night away. And then if they still could do something, would leave the fuck later. And the, the gay crowd at Mancuso's Loft, there was one night, was it? Same thing with the, the garage. It was like Saturday nights were the gay nights and Friday nights were the straight nights. 
but both nights were straight and gay. You know what I'm saying? So same thing with David's club. And David's following was a heterosexual following. And going into the clubs, there were two different fields. Uh, Nikki's club, well, like I said, was primarily gay. And it was, uh, Nikki, Nikki was a personality. He was like the star of the show, always the star of the show. <laughs> and uh, and <laughs> he was true. wild, he so was true. always the star. He was just always, it was always Nikki was the star. And, uh, and, uh, and the crowd was mixed. And you'd go to this great big room and there'd always be balloons all around. And it was a huge space. And very simple though, a very simple space, just a great big huge room and a DJ booth at the end over here. And you go in and all the dance within a little lounge area here. And, and Nikki would be in the booth. And, uh, and it, but it was, again, he used to have strawberries that were laced with LSD and <laughs> it was a very, very druggy experience, but great fun. And then well, with that David- That would be the party elevate, I presume, right? In the sense, huh? it would elevate the party, right? The drug it thing. certainly would elevate the party for eight hours, for two days, <laughs> elevate that party nonstop. You, even if you wanted to, and that little, the little purple muscles, you couldn't stop dancing until five in the morning. <laughs> Lenny. So, but or Mancuso, three in the afternoon. Or three in the those, afternoon. That's right. For those that went to Mancuso's parties, the music was a bit lower, more. Controlled. That's right. Yeah. Nikki's yep. party and, and was. You know what? David played more of a mix of stuff, and he wasn't afraid to play stuff that was, wasn't danceable. And he cleared the floor many a time with a record that he just thought it was. And you know what he used to play? Um, Chuck Mangione, Land of Make Believe. Da, 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 da. And that's just Sabsfield would come. Da, 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 da. And he put it on and played the whole fucking thing, which is 18 minutes long. And he didn't care whether he wanted to dance to it. He loved the record that David Mancuso. So here I am. And down, the loft had <clears throat> various levels. And then it had the downstairs with the, 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 the bar. And it was like a huge thing. It I, Steve would always have me make the tuna fish with <laughs> huge cans of tuna fish. And there would be lots of food and uh, that they would bring in prepared so you could eat a lot. And then they'd have the punch. Well, that was the first time I had, um, so I was such, I don't know. I, I didn't ask Nikki. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I didn't ask Steve. And I was making, I was, and you get so thirsty, Lenny, dancing like that. True. And, and then you don't care what the, you, see, you just want to drink and you still care. Something there, the punch is laced with, oh, I'm so thirsty. <laughs> and you get so high and you get so high. Three, oh, four cups of it, and you go and yes, right, and you're on the moon. Oh, you're on the moon. So here I am with uh, Steve Dishquisto upstairs with uh, David playing. Yes, that's a good point to make about David's music. And he didn't mix. You know, he didn't cross mix. What do you mean he didn't mix? He butted thoughts together, like Bobby DJ. He, there was never cross-fading. Where David played, and so Bobby DJ. You remember Bobby DJ? Bobby, Bobby DJ, what the door, another Italian. Played the same way. Played the same way. He didn't crossfade. He played one record, boom, into another record, back to back. No bullshit. Was, and, and if you couldn't keep dancing, fuck you, you know? Because lots of times he changed the whole pace of the evening by playing a slower song or a faster song. And getting everybody crazy because you'd be up here, up like on the roof with something up tempo thing. And then he'd have, then he put in something slow, like like um Cherche La Femme. And everybody freak out. Ah! <laughs> because I mean this is very do you know what I'm saying? 
So I'm there with Steve Duke Christo and, uh, and once again, the way David played, and then you, the entire dance floor was so high, you know, and the upstairs, all balloons and everything. And David lived in the back of the first floor. He had a little loft there, a little bunk bed, a little area. And that was the record pool. You know, that 99 Prince Street was also a record pool. Yes, I do know that. But let's tell our viewers, that was where the first record pool in New York had its meetings. And That's in right. those days, Judy Weinstein was the secretary. Of yes. The record pool at 99 Prince Street. Before all the record pools were created, it started. That's where I met. That's where I first met Judy. That's right. Ronnie Coles talks about that as well yep. many yep. times to me. Yeah. I always say, uh, Judy got mad at me once because I told somebody the first time I ever met Judy, she was selling a loose joints to Cristo. And so she got mad at me. <laughs> Why? Why she she, she, she's a, a businesswoman now. She's a very she, and she's got a reputation. Blah blah blah. <clears throat> so now I say I I saw her giving joints to Cisco. <laughs> she was giving. She wasn't selling. She was giving them. Giving See? and you're asking why. <laughs> <laughs> so in any case, that's loose joints, loose joints. That's how that name came around. So, so this is all pre. This they is all sell joints. You know that group loose joints. Yes. It's all over my face. It's all. It's the, it's the best. Steve Christos records because he used to sell those joints, those joints, those joints. So they named the group of those joints. So then I'm on the, on, the, uh, on the dance floor with Steve. And David used to do this one thing to freak people out intentionally. You know, when you're that high, if you stop and you're dancing your ass off and you stop a record, it could be two seconds or three seconds. And it seems like an eternity. It seems like forever. You're on the dance floor waiting. You should, what the fuck happened? The music stopped. You know what I'm saying? So then what, mm -hmm. what Mancuso would do is he'd wait about five seconds and then play another. But he'd play a favorite, you know? It was uh, an audience favorite. If you get, you get silence, everybody just screaming, ah! Like, really? They go, ah! No and then he put on a favorite and it would be, ah! Like this. So the entire dance floor went up and a scream and hands in the air and waving and dancing and screaming to the record that David, I don't remember the record, that Dave Mancuso went into. And Steve DiCristo took and grabbed me and hugged me and he said, this goes, this goes on the cathedrals of now. And I said, oh, that sounds nice, doesn't it? I should write a song called Cathedrals. And that was it. You mean, you mean Steve yelling, say that once again. What did Steve yell to you? He threw up his hands, he says, discos are the cathedrals of now. Because it was very high. cathedrals of now. You hear that, people? Yeah. And he so I said, said that I, said, I said to myself, I may be high, but I'm going to remember that. And Holy then, shit, I didn't know that. I never knew where that came from. I was always wondering where that came from. And then with all the honesty thing that was welling up in me and all the sexual things that were happening. So I'm going to just stop you for a second. You got to understand just, something. just flowed out of me. Wait, so you got to understand everyone. Steve Diakisto at that time was playing also in another club called Haven. And he was also another go-to like Francis Grasso and a few others at Dave Mancusa's early 70s. And DC's there as part of the scene, living the scene, art directing, still writing music. And this just happens to break in on the middle of a dance floor at the loft. Yeah, Holy awesome. shit, this is incredible. So what happens at the loft? Wait a minute. He's, he puts his hands in the air and he proclaims this and you say, I'm high, but I'm going to remember this. Yeah, Tell me what right. happens from that point. Go ahead. 
Well, then what happened is that the, I had the, I came up with this idea to do a concept album of good things. Like, hey, if you listen to it from beginning to end, you'll understand what it's about. It's about a breakup. It's about um, uh, 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 mourning the relationship that's over and then going out into the streets again and then into the week feedback that was just nice, like recovery from the, the, the heartbreak. And so, so that's the whole thing of that. So, the, and the, see. so then I, so see. then I was writing it. So then I was writing the lyrics, and I told you I was doing work, art direction work for uh, one of the groups I was working with, Ten Wheel Drive. Michael Zager, Aaron Sheff from Ten Wheel Drive. Michael Zager band. Yes, we know. Michael Zager. And so yeah. Michael Zager and Aaron Sheff, and I was working primarily not with Michael, except that I was in touch with Michael, but with Aaron. So Aaron was here at the. In the department, and I said, Aaron, I said, you know, I made some records. He hadn't even, he didn't even know I had made records three years before. He knew me as an art director. And so I said, what do you think of this? And I played him cathedrals, and I played him, I don't want to lose you. And Deep Dark Delicious Night. And uh, he said, oh, wow. And then I played him Love to Love You, Baby, <laughs> which he had never heard. And I said, let's do something like this. He said, oh, because he, he was producing, you know, rock band, a uh, horror band stuff with Tim Will Drive and Michael. And Michael had started, he hooked up with uh, Jerry Love and Jerry Love was trying to convince him to do disco. It's an interesting time, Michael. And Michael didn't want to do disco too much. That's okay. A lot of guys. And so, and, so, and so Jerry Love kept saying, I'm handling you now. They had a publishing thing together. I'm handling you now, Michael. I want you to start thinking disco. And so then, you know, uh, so Michael Zager played on cathedrals, you know that. So Aaron got him into playing cathedrals. All right, and hang, so, on, hang on, hang on, hang on. What's what studio? What how that all transpire? Who booked what? You know. Well, that's the whole. That's another story. See, so so Aaron and I got together and we decided to um, work on the project together. And so then uh, uh, I took it around. I because I was in the industry for so long, I took the concept around to uh, three or four or five New York City labels. <laughs> and uh, and they all turned it down. <laughs> and my friend Jim Delahan at Atlantic turned it down. My friend Bob Reno <laughs> at Vanguard turned it down. Everybody turned it down. I, I would say everybody in the world. Ariston turned it down. Amy Mallow turned it down. And so, um, what was the response from the turndowns? Because you know they tell you something. Well, you know they do Get tell you stuff. Tired. Oh, I feel oh, thank you. No, please, no. And I even took it to the guy, uh, Miko, who was arranging for Gloria Gaynor. Oh, yeah, Miko, and yes. Had, yes. And Tony and Bon Jovi and, I, and oh, Miko. I, I played for Miko. He didn't want to work on it either. Was that Miko, so, Miko Monadardo Mon or something? Yeah, I something like that. I'm telling you for you. So, in any case, so what happens is that um, I we took it around. And they, oh, why, why? I was a white boy. I was a gay boy. I was an embarrassment. I was oh, wait, this, I was that. The lyrics were too sexy. The lyrics were X-rated. Who's going to buy a record? Whoever heard of a record? There were as long as you're endless, as long as you're on. Excuses. Nobody wanted to touch it. And so uh, I, I had a friend, Dennis Gannum, who was the A&I guy. I had known him for a few years in the industry. I've always got along with him very well. and. Him and his wife and his daughter lived a few blocks away from me. So I, and he was at Brute Records 
And uh, they were releasing a lot of soundtrack stuff, but they were going out of business. And he was the A&R guy. And I went over to visit him one night and I said, Aram, oh, no. And he was leaving Brute. And I said, so I got Aram to come over with Dennis Gannum. And Dennis loved the idea. Everything loved the idea. And so uh, Dennis Gannum, I told Dennis, I tried to sell it to everybody. So Dennis Gannum formed, formed Pyramid Records to expressly produce and release cathedrals because he loves to sing. So the record label was formed for me because of me. And then uh, Dennis booked it at uh, uh, Essen Youngblood Groove Sound, G-R-O-V Groove Sound on 54th Street and in Manhattan, West 54th Street. And we went in and we recorded the 16 track recorded cathedral stuff. And I took <clears throat> the whole album. 16 track, I, one inch or two inch? It was two inch, it was the 16, 16 track. 16 track, okay. And so, um, that who is consisted, Who consisted in the recording as far as drummer, bass player? Well, I don't read. Fonce, Fonce Goldberg was the bass player and Richie Cooks was the drummer. And uh, Oh, please. Michael Sager was on keyboards. They moved. And it's on the album. I don't remember off the top. No, I remember. I remember those guys. They were, they were rock and roll people from Aram's rock group of people that he hung out with because he was a rocker. And, uh, and uh, the horn players, the string players, Irv Spice, the horn players, horn players from his bands, you know, whatever. The background singers, uh, he was, he was uh, uh, Annie Sutton, one of the singers he was having an affair with, he was living with. So it was like a very tight lip. Wow, there's <laughs> like, a lot of juiciness. There's a lot of disco yeah. juice to this juice. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so in any case, so, <clears throat> and I remember the night, and Steve bless his soul. You know, Nikki said to me a while back, he said, do you give Steve DeCrystal the kind of credit he deserves? I said, all the time, all the time. Because <laughs> Nikki knew the story. Because Steve DeCrystal took it to, <clears throat> to Nikki. And then I took it to Nikki. And that's, that was like, the, and Steve DeCrystal gave the acetate to David Mancuso. So Steve DeCrystal became its personal promotion person in New York City. He became the go-to guy. He brought it to everybody, yes. right? <laughs> and uh, so- uh, Who's the first that broke in in New York as far as a DJ? Who really broke in? I think, I don't know this for sure. I think what, What's your hunch? What's your hunch? If David Mancuso played it right away, he may have been the first one to play it. That's an if, because I don't know. But I know the first one that I'm aware of on the planet that played it was when I handed Nikki an acetate at gallery personally on a Saturday night, and he listened to it and he played it right away. So I think he's the first one in the world that ever played. So what? Okay, so you're back at gallery. You hand this acetate to Nikki. You're watching from the booth, or you walked out? Oh no, I left. I left. I left. I was so afraid. Oh, you left? I left to walk home. Yeah, I, I didn't want to skip the dance. I he started playing it. Dun 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 dun. I snuck out the door. What? <laughs> yeah. Why? Because I didn't want. Because I didn't want to hear it. You know, because I took it to. I took it personally to Tom Severis and Twelve West. And he played it, he said, oh, I love it, I love it. And I said, can you play it now? This is a good example of why I walked out. 
Now, this is after Nikki played it, but I was afraid of this happening, and it did happen. And so I said to him, everybody's telling me what a hit it was. And so I took it to Tom, and I, he listened to it, and he said, yes, I love it, I'll play it. I said, can you play it now? He said, don't ask me to play it now, DC. He said, I'm going to need a couple of nights to introduce it to this crowd. And I said, oh, please play it now. I know, from what I understand, a big hit. Da, 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 da. He said, don't ask me to play it. Finally, he acquiesced. And he played it, cleared the dance floor, cleared it, emptied the dance floor, because they didn't know it. Just cleared the dance floor, and I was devastated. Oh, <laughs> I was crushed. I said, how can they tell me this record is such a fucking hit? It just cleared the dance floor. So I, and I've never done that ever. I've never in my life, since that thing with Tom Service, I've never asked the DJ to play my record, ever, ever. <laughs> and if they would say they played it, they're going to play it, I'd leave before they played it because I didn't want to watch the dance floor. Finally, I got a little bit more at ease with it. Uh, I remember when I visited Robert O up in Montreal at the Limelight. Uh, and this is when Let Them Dance was such a huge hit. <laughs> and th he must have had 1,800 people. It was huge. It was like an airplane hanger. And uh, I was in his booth and he said to me, he said, I'm going to play Let Them Dance. I said, look, not while I'm here, please. No, while you're here. And I said, no. So he put it on. And it was such a thrill to see the, like, <laughs> 1,400 dancers, straight people, by the way, straight boys and girls, dancing on mass to that record. And screaming and yelling and having such a good time. And so <clears throat> it was really a joyous night. So I, but I usually don't indulge myself in that kind of. So Cathedral's big shoe a household name after a while. The record's being- Well, it was a niche, it was a niche. Now, I, I'll tell you something. I can see why the big record companies didn't want it. Radio stations would not play it because they thought the lyric was too gay and too sexually oriented and I couldn't get played. I didn't get played except for a couple of big disco stations here and there in the States. <laughs> they played it in France and in Italy, whatever, because it was in English and they couldn't, they couldn't censor it. And it was huge in and the UK. That's what, but I what UK. was the words in there that made it the sexual connotation? What are the words that- The whole song is about it. Come on, pay attention to it. I know. <laughs> we have it, we have, we have, no, it's, I don't, you know, that's also one more thing I might add. People will say to me, what does the lyric mean? And I say to them, what does it mean to you? Because that's what it means to me. And I got that from David Bowie. <laughs> a long time ago, David Bowie said, they asked him in one of the interviews, what does the lyric to this mean? And that means, he said, oh, I can't say that. He said, because if I say what it means to me, and, and you love the song, and it means something entirely different to you, it'll break your heart. And it means what it means to you, and that's what it means. And so I got that from, so I don't explain it. No, no, it's fine. No, I'm just asking yeah, on the yeah. radio sense because yeah. you must have been. It's like anything. You must I, have been uh, when uh, like don't keep in the shadows. Recently, you know, somebody said, "Oh, <clears throat> I did that duet with Lucrisi, <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> we wrote it together." And what we were writing about, literally, honest to God, on my heart, we were writing about the dance floor disco experience. Uh, Dancing with a star, there's a difference, we can't go too far. And the danger that we're tasting now is all the right and all the wrong, all the, all the drugs, all the dancing, all the sexuality. 
<clears throat> had nothing to do with being exclusively gay. Mm -hmm. People, but so many people just took it upon themselves to interpret that as a gay lyric. And didn't right. want to play it. Of course, and you it wasn't a gay lyric. We were writing about going to a disco, Studio Fifty Four. How does that make it gay? But you know, people. But, but the point I'm making is. You listen to it and you hear what you want to hear. And if those people want to hear that it's a gay song about gay sex or whatever, fine. If that's what it means to you. But if you're going to be a straight person and listen to that lyric, and that's what it means to you because you're living vicariously through your imagination, and then we'll play it on the radio, well, fuck you. You know, <clears throat> that's unfair. That's unfair. So now Neil Bogart comes into your life. Yes, he does. Rock and roll promoter, rock and roll manager, decides and finds disco. What's fun? Discovers Georgia Moroda. Brings love to love you, baby, to America. Oh. Bring us him. He got Moroda. There's two stories. He got Moroda to take the four minute record and extend it to an 18 minute song. That was Neil's idea. He called yeah. him from LA and he says, we're playing the record over and over at this party. Oh, yeah. Make it longer, and make it longer. Make and and that is, and, and you know what? Credit to Giorgio. He created a whole new art form because that is the record. I told this to Donna at a couple of times. The first time I met her, I said to her, you know, Donna, love to love you, baby, changed my life. Changed the whole direction of my music. And it's true at that moment at 12 of us. What year did and, you tell her this? What year was that? What? When did you tell her this? In the 70s? Or later? Uh, 70, 77. In the 77. When Four Seasons Walk. Yes. I met her when Four Seasons Walk came out. Wow, that's incredible. All right, so bring us to Neil Bogart and the Bogart experience. Oh, boy. Uh, well, Come on, because we know I'm going to yeah. ask you about Nile Rogers too in the screen. Well, no, you know, ask that. But go ahead, because I heard Nile tell me that. I asked the same question Nal about that, but go ahead. Well, you know, I'm friendly with Neil's grandson, kind of, who's a terrific guy, beautiful family. And, oh. um, and uh, he always asking questions about his dad. I'm in touch, I just got an Instagram from him, him and his kids. And his grandmother, the kids, the, the hit, Neil, Joyce, the grandmother is still alive, you know, she's still alive. And I love Joyce, I just love Joyce. She was so sweet and always treated me like a, <laughs> I was like so special with her. So that having been said, I um I don't talk, you know, when I read Larry Harris's book, The Casablanca Story, I said to myself, what's with this asshole? <laughs> I said, he's the only man that could write a book about the most exciting record company on the planet and make it sound dull. <laughs> make it sound like the corporate offices of RCA. I couldn't believe that book. It was garbage. Nothing. You know, it was a shadow of what it could have been realistically, well, even without, well, even without betraying a lot of the, a lot of the sensational stuff. You know, well, he could have Correct it for us, because you were part of that Casablanca story. That's why. So, but in any case, I, uh, uh, so I, so uh, into, well, you know, Dennis Gannon had to go to Morris Levy, <clears throat> Roulette Records. Now, I love Morris, so yeah. you're not going to get any argument out of me because he gave me unlimited budgets. He, I got American Express cards. He never paid me royalties. And he was a dangerous man. He's, he could grind you up and feed you to the alligators in Tallahassee Swamp. But if you got along with him and played his game, 
I mean, he, he invited me to the country all the time. We'd have, you know, uh, take me to Fire's Club. We had a good time together. We had a good time together. And so, but but right off the bat, you know, it's, you know, you know, you're not going to paid. <laughs> but he, I needed money for something. He always write me the check, $3,000, $5,000. I never had to look for money. So, but he, it was his industry standard. He couldn't, he couldn't pay me royalties because he was known for not paying royalties. It was like that, you know? I loved him. Delightful man to be with. Delightful, great host, great host. And so, uh, but Dennis had to go to Morris. Dennis Gam, the guy who started Pyramid Records, had to, ran out of money right in the middle of recording cathedrals. Ran out of money. And so what happened was, is that he, um, he had, the only person he could go to was Morris. Because Morris was kind of, uh, he said, he'll take anything he can get for nothing. And as long as you know, you're not going to get paid royalties, he'll put it out. And if it doesn't work, he'll forget about it. And if it does work, he'll help you out promoting it. That was Morris Levy. And as far as an, a and an ear, all he likes was Donna Washington and Kyle Basie, the jazz singers, Carmen McRae. He only, he only, he used to work at Birdland. As a, he started out as a messenger at Birdland, cold check at Birdland, Morris, when he was a kid on the Lower East Side. And that was the music he loved, Dino Washington, no, Dino Washington, So that was, so he didn't know pop music that, you know, he didn't know, uh, 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 you know, uh, Crimson and Clover, or, or, you know, Hanky Page for Adam. And so he got involved with a guy, uh, uh, George, what his name was, who was a big doo-wop guy. So he had End Records and he had the G Records and he got Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers and he got the Flamingos and he got the Chantels. Industry legend. Industry legend. And I felt it, I always felt it was an honor working with Morris. An honor. Reputation and honor. I was privileged to be in his company because he had given so many great musicians and performers a chance to work. Okay? So that having been said, Dennis goes to Morris to get the money to finish the record. So Dennis moves out of his office on 57th Street and moves over to Columbus Circle into the Relax offices, sets up his own offices. T-Dance comes out, sensation, indiscreet, huge hip-hop record. And Morris came to me, he said, I don't know what the fuck is happening. I don't know what the fuck is happening. Whoever heard of hip-hop? It's a hip-hop record? Whoever fucking heard of hip-hop? That's Morris Levy, you know. Huge success. And then, then Morris... Morse got his lawyer to be the lawyer for Pyramid, and the lawyer found out that Dennis was stealing money <laughs> from the company. Oh, God. And I got to say one thing. You don't steal money from Morris. No, you don't steal money from Morris Lee. Not, not, no, you don't steal He'll money. steal money from you, but don't steal money from him. Thank you very much. And so, you know what? Understand who Morris Levy is, guys. This is the top, top. You can top Google him. <laughs> Morris he's the music guy for the Genevieve's crime family. I was going to say he's the, the nephew music, of... Uh, the music for, the, for the music division of the Genevieve's crime family. That was yeah, it. the mafia so crime family, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so, so, um, so I got a call from Dennis in the middle of the night, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning. And he says to me, he says, DC, I just had a run-in with Morris. He says, I'm in a little bit of trouble with him. He says, I'm going to leave town for a while. I'll call you when I get back. And Lenny, I've never heard from him again. Never heard from him again. <laughs> Disappeared. 
His wife and daughter lived around the corner, Carol Ann. And I would say, Carol Ann, have you heard from Dennis? She didn't even know where he was. She eventually moved back to live with her father around the Cape, Cape Cod, with her daughter. Dennis, nobody heard from Dennis again. So use your imagination. So then Morris calls me into his office and he says he had just gotten married and he, his wife was pregnant and he wasn't feeling too good. He was having some problems medically. And he called me in and he says, you know what, DC, I want to lighten up a little bit. He says, um, I hope you understand. He said, uh, I know you got a contract for three more albums. He said, uh, what do you want to do? He said, I don't really want to run a record company. He said, I want to go to the farm up in upstate New York, the horses and whatever, and be with Story and have the baby and whatever. And I said, who do I want to go to? He said, yeah. He says, I know the record company want to be with <laughs> And I said, I had gotten friendly with Mark Paul Simon and Arnie Smith, and they were both at Casablanca's promotion people. So Mark and I got very provocative promotions, and he became vice, Mark Simon became vice president of special promotions. And so I said, that, that'd be a good place for me to be, because I'm so friendly with Mark, and he's the head of the disco division. So I said to Morris, I said, Morris, I said, I'd like to be with Casablanca. Right there in the office. So he picks up the phone. And you know, speaker phones? He put on speakerphone. It was like the 70s. <laughs> and he got Neil on the phone immediately. And Neil says, What's up? And he says, Well, I'm sitting here with Morris says, I'm sitting here with DC LaRue. And I've decided because of my health and because of this and because of that, I don't really want to have to deal with a functioning production record company. And I just asked him who he'd like to be with to produce his, get his records together, produce his records, package his records. And he said, Casablanca. Hey, I said, Casablanca. And so I heard Neil say it. Neil says, put him on a plane. Yes, the answer is yes, put him on a plane. Oh, cathedrals, DC, put him on a plane. We're finishing up the soundtrack for the Thank God It's Friday. There's two slots open. And if you get him out here soon enough, Morris, we'll put him on the soundtrack. And three days later, I was in California in Neil's office, <laughs> writing with Bob Esty, the soundtrack of that kind of stuff. You wrote, for Bob, you wrote with Bob Esty right then yeah. and there. Right then and there, yeah. We got along great. Luckily, see, fortunately, fortunately, we were on the same week. Bob could be very difficult working with, unlike Aram. Aram, Aram didn't have so much of an ego. I, I could change directions for Aram, you know, musically, and he didn't fight it. Bob fought my changes. You know, I had to work on Bob. <laughs> but regardless, <clears throat> he's made, he made magnificent records. Flawless. So I was working, so we did the soundtrack, and then we went into do confessions, and, and that's how I ended up with... Uh, did you see with, any like, of the movie? Did you see any of the movie? They just had you... Yes, we did. We had a click track, and, we, and uh, for, the, for Do You Want the Real Thing, we were facing the scene the disco scene where the guy's going over to pick up the girl. And that originally had been Love to Love You Baby. But then they didn't want, they didn't decide they didn't want to use to Love to Love You Baby. <clears throat> the other thing was the guy in drag shaving his chest in the men's room. And I saw that and we had a click track because you know, they make click tracks so you can write, so they can just insert the this music. And so, uh, so that's it. So I said the, the, the pickup thing was, you go and pick up a girl, and you see the leg and everything, and and uh, you know you see her knee, and and uh, 
So if you go to pick up the girl and you're at a disco, you say, do you want some Coke? Do you want the real thing? So that's how I wrote that. Do you want some cocaine in me? You want to go to bed with me? Come home, I'll give you some cocaine. It could be the real thing. And then you can always tell a lady by the company she keeps from the company. That's the parent. is <laughs> the drag queen in the industry. Always tell them. So, so we came up with the titles and we wrote them together, yes. Yeah. Great fun. And how big did those records become? Well, uh, it's interesting. It's, it's, you know, well, it was on uh, the soundtrack, and the soundtrack went triple platinum. And Mark Simon promoted the hell out of the 12 inch, and that got the unlimited response. Do You Want the Real Thing was very slow. It was, <clears throat> say, Temple is Love to Love You, Baby. And by that time, the energy of the dance floor, dance floors around the world had picked up a little bit. And I remember visiting Jim Burgess at Limelight. And I walked into the booth with him. <laughs> Jim was such a sweet man, such, a, such fun to be with. And, uh, and I complaining, you know, he's doing poppers there, sip of coke. And I said, and he says, I said, I never hear, I never hear anybody play, do you want the real thing? And he said, well, I play it all the time. This was about two o'clock in the morning. And I said, when do you play it? He said, oh, half an hour, an hour before closing. He said, I put that on when the boys and girls want to go into the back on the banquets and the pillows and fuck. <laughs> yeah. So it was the end of the night record, and I never lasted until the end of the night. So that's why I never heard it. But through the years, it's become a favorite, a disco favorite. And the, I'm very glad because I loved it. And I thought it was, it's a magnificently constructed constructed record and Bob raises that off and it's the perfect recording and I, and it's and it's gained in popularity. It really is it's got a whole cult following now. Well I know now Rogers from Chic was always inspired by your indiscreet. Indiscreet, that's right. Now that. Rogers used to play <coughs> play um he's the DJ on the block or whatever. And uh I I said something to him. I sent him a note or something on Instagram and he goes can this be DC LaRue? Be indiscreet, DC LaRue. Oh, I love your lyrics. I love your regular guys. So I, I didn't know that all these years. I didn't know that he had started playing my, my, uh, <laughs> my T-Dance album and my uh, Cathedral album. That's a great compliment, actually. You'd be surprised. Where, I always say you'd be surprised where your music takes you. Yes, you, it, it, very true. Very true. Big surprise. And uh, I have a... My whole audience now is much younger, <laughs> you know. Uh, when the Joey Negro and Z Records did the, the remix compilation that came out two years ago, they, it was number one on TrackSource and Beatport, Beatport and Juno downloaded for like four weeks, the two albums. And then the single, the single was number one for like seven, eight weeks on TrackSource. And then it was the number one downloaded single, uh, dance single of the year. <laughs> so <clears throat> I always say, uh, a, a record that was 42 years old came back and was bigger than ever. And the whole audience, they did demographic and they're all under 35 years old. So I've got a whole Because DC, a great record's a great record. You know what? That's what Joe, you know, listen, God bless Joey Negro, who I adore. I mean, needless to say, <clears throat> he is my superhero. Uh, somebody, he did an interview and somebody said, because when it went number one, 
It is unbelievable. Who ever heard that? A record, the same, tra the tracks were made, you know, over 40 years ago. Hello? And for him to put it together and make it go number one again for, for the year. And they said to Joey, they said, uh, well, you had a lot to do with that, Joey, you know, with the success. You know, he said, he said, without you and your magic remix, blah, 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 it would have never had seen the light of day. And Joey turned around and said, it's what I had to work with. And I had some of the best recording tracks, 16 tracks that I've ever worked with in my life with cathedrals. And you can only do what you do if the, if the quality is there to start with. That's right. Yeah, so that's what he said. He said, it's not me. I may be, this is my thing, but if cathedrals hadn't been incredible from the get-go, the energy, you would have never that's it. So, and thank so, you, Joey. Thank you if he's watching. Thank you, Joey Negro. Thank you, Joey Negro. Dave Lee, yeah. When did, um, so how do we, where do we go from here? You know, you did the, you went out to LA. How long did you stay out there? And when did this go awry for you, the Casablanca story? When did that end? Oh, I don't know what I'm talking about that. <laughs> oh, no. Wait, 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 and I all was not things prepared must for it. change and they do end. We all know that. <laughs> so take us on that part of your life. And I was not prepared for it, buddy. I wasn't. Like Boston, nobody is. We were all ready to sail on forever in the disco bubble. We really were. I mean, it's just unbelievable. When it broke, when the bubble broke, nobody could, you know, nobody could get a deal. Gloria Gaynor couldn't get a deal. Uh, Peter Brown couldn't get a deal. Gino Socio couldn't get a deal. The, the, as long as, as your arm, Tina Charles couldn't get a deal because we were at disco. Nobody wanted us. Nobody, nobody. I remember seeing that Gloria finally got a thing, uh, a CD out in the mid 80s, and, and the David Granoff, the publicity guy, could get a party at Studio 54. It was the very tail end of Studio 54, and it was very depressing. Very depressing. The last the last days of Studio 54, sad. And so we were in the balcony, I was in the balcony with Gloria. I don't think she'll mind me telling this story. And she said, uh, her husband uh, was a gambler, a womanizer. They're not married now, spending all her money. And when Gloria Gaynor, I will survive those huge giant fucking records. She couldn't get a record deal. For years, nobody wanted to sign her until I think uh, Blue Diamond, Joel Diamond did a record with her. Uh, I am what I am. But until then, so she said to me, she said, she had been living in Inkwood, New Jersey. The Baptist Church was paying half her rent and her electricity to keep it up. Baptist Church. And her husband had run off, stolen all her money, and she couldn't get a gig. She couldn't perform. Is that a, is that a story? The Baptist Church was paying her kind of some after rent. Gloria Gaynor. There you go. <laughs> of course, if her, if her husband hadn't been a crook and a gambler and a womanizer, yes, but that's where we all ended up. And so, um, uh, I remember village people, Randy tried to go on uh, on his own, Felipe tried, nothing was working. 
and me, excuse me, when I had one more album to do, and uh, I came back to New York City, the offices in, in, in uh, Neil uh, went public with the stocks, did a buyback, leaving Joyce and the family with lots of money, uh, that, that stock manipulation thing, and then sold the company to Polydor. And uh, closed up the, uh, the Los Angeles office, empty. Empty, I, I, I went there too after they had cleaned it all out. You know, Neil had done the whole thing like the uh, Rick's Cafe, Casablanca, all the, the tchotchke stuff from, uh, from uh, Casablanca and the chairs and the rugs and the, you know, the, the pipes and everything, the brass and the statues, all cleaned out, just hauled out. It was like bare walls. Bare walls. Oh, Lenny, it was so disappointing. It was so sad. And so uh, uh, I moved back to New York City. I hadn't given up my apartment. I had a friend living here. And so, um, which was fortunate for me, because I would get all these people going, oh, DC, you're making all this money. Why don't you move out of your village? And I said, no. <laughs> so, uh, and I went to Morris, went to Morris. And I said, Morris, I said, I'm, nope, they're not answering me at Casablanca. And I have one more album to do. And, <laughs> and, uh, and Morris said, what? You got an album to do? Did I pick it up your phone? So he, now the guy who had taken over Casablanca here in New York City and, and Polygram, David Braun. David Braun came from New York City folk, <laughs> Bob Dylan. Judy Collins, you can imagine. Oh, please. Oh, 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 Joni Mitchell. <laughs> That's David Braun. And David Braun fucking hated disco. Hated everything that was a part of Casablanca with a vengeance, with a passion. And Morris picked up the phone and got David on the, on the, on the phone. And he said, uh, he said, I'm sitting here with DC the Rue and you guys, I don't care whether the polygram, but, 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 but you guys owe him another album. And David Braun said to Morris Levy, you can tell that faggot to shove it up his ass. Meaning me. I'm listening on the speakerphone. You can't, you can't, believe, my jaw dropped. Do you think it's disappointing? And Morris says, you don't talk to him like that. He's got another album to do and you're going to furnish the budget. So get used to it. Morris, you don't fuck with Morris either. But can you, that's how I, that's, that's how I was revered at Casablanca Polygram when David Braun took over. He didn't want anything to do with me or Disco or the Village People or Donna Summer or any of them. Out, 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 Al Contentinos, out, Giorgio Moroda. He didn't fucking care. He hated Disco with a vengeance and, and didn't mind saying it. So I was very depressed. We went and we did Star Baby with Aram, <clears throat> which I think under the circumstances was a brilliant album. It was brilliant. And I got the best reviews of any album I ever did, Lenny. Stereo Review said my, you know, I changed my performance a lot. And Stereo Review said that I was like a young Mick Jagger. My attitude was so edgy and fabulous. Mick Jagger, compared me to Mick Jagger. But it was a different vocal approach. And I, but I found it very easy. And you know what I was doing too? Aram and I knew what we were doing. We were also making fun of the, the new rock wave dance music. You know, we were, we were making fun of it. And, you know, 
when we wrote the songs and everything, we're saying, oh, you think because we're disco, we don't have any balls? You know? So we went in to make an album that was just as good or better than any of those groups were doing down in the, at the, at the CBGBs, you know? As good or better to make them look silly. And the reviews were brilliant. I just, every review, England, the UK, and Europe, and Germany. <laughs> but uh, it didn't go anywhere because it was one of the last albums that Casablanca ever put out. David Bond couldn't have cared less, you know, talk about falling through the cracks. You know, I think they made the, the initial pressing was like 5,000 <laughs> just to get it out of the way, just to get it out of the way. And, uh, and so it went nowhere. They, no energy, there was no label, there was no promotion department. There was no promotion department for Casablanca Records, period. The entire company had been chilled, you know, empty, gone. Everybody was gone. And so at that point, I just felt very, very bad. <laughs> What'd you do after that? After that well, oh, what did I do after that? Oh my God. I stopped drinking and drugging because I knew I couldn't continue with that. It was too expensive. And also, I was killing myself. I really, I felt terrible all the time. I, you know, it, I had hangovers that would last for five days. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't do anything. I was useless. I was a vegetable. And so I, I realized, and nobody got me sober. I got me sober. I just said, I'm killing you. You're killing you. It was that moment of, cognitive moment of recognition of self, self-analysis. You know, I got one, one afternoon, I went, it was after a horrendous Christmas and New Year's. And I was, I was in bed for two days and I got up and I came to the living room and I said, DC, you're killing yourself. You better stop this. I stopped. I stopped. And then I went back to art direction for a while. And then, uh, and then I went to photography. I got a job at the National Arts Club as their principal photographer here in New York City and in, 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 in Midtown. And, uh, that was great. Oh boy, the good times I had there, photographing all these fabulous people and famous people, and you name them, I photographed them. You know, uh, Ted Kennedy, uh, Caroline Kennedy, uh, uh, Pavarotti, everybody, everybody, you know, Golden Girls, you name it. Everybody who was famous and in town went there and to perform or to socialize. It was a very famous club, arts club. And, uh, and I had to photograph all of them, you know, uh, Henry Miller and going on. So that uh, Al Sharpton, I can, the, I can't, I can't care to leave. Um, I, that goes on and on. So I had a wonderful photographic portfolio from those years. And then uh, I was working for the president there, uh, Alden James, and he got thrown out of office because his brother was stealing money. Those <laughs> are great stories. And so the new person who took over, it's like, you know, the new broom sweeps clean. And she called me into the office, the new president, she said, I love your work. I love your work, DC. You've been such an asset to this club for the last six years, but we're going to ask you to leave the premises. <laughs> you know? <clears throat> so that was the end of that. But right at that moment, uh, Disco started authentically for the real deal, really started taking off again. You know, it, the resurgence of interest was legit, as we have never seen it before, as you well know, you and I know. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that, my, uh, my demise from the National Arts Club here in New York City, uh, 
just, I walked right into a whole new discovery. I got the Sims back, I got my radio show. Uh, I got a whole bunch of other stuff going on. And, uh, but I remember, but I remember, I remember you were at some record shop. Nikki had told me he ran into you. If you, Nikki Siano, were you working somewhere? HMV Records. Uh, HMV. He told me. I remember he, he on Eighty Sixth Street. Yeah. He said to me, "Oh, <laughs> I ran to DC." I remember that. He told me that a few times. I did all their windows and all their instrument displays. Yeah. Yeah, you were doing all for, that for a couple of years. Oh boy, and I'll tell you something else. Yeah, it was interesting. I thought I would never have a good time anywhere else, but where I was at Casablanca and Disco. I've made, uh, when I was my time at H&V Record Store, I made the best friends, the closest friends, we're still in touch now. And those guys that I've worked with, I mean, even there's no H&V Record Store. You remember Record Stores, Lenny? <laughs> Do you remember Record Stores? Well, we talk no about that all the time. That's the one thing that we all miss. It was like, that was the Oh, day. it was great. And we had a dance section in the back, and I used to do all the displays and the, the windows and everything. And, and the dance section, I used to help out with the dance section, Aminta, and we used to take it, we used to, uh, I used to make suggestions of records I could buy, or he could buy, blah, 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 merchant, and the whole 12-inch section, you know, and all the CDs, all the dance CDs that come out of dance. And I had a great time there. A one, and, and the fellowship at that place, the, my coworkers, just amazing. And I, you know, there's a, there's, there's a bigger world out there. And that's what I learned from this whole thing since Castlepoint. Uh, when it first happened, I don't think I'd ever survive it. And, and uh, I'm, you know, mm -hmm. I've, I've lived to tell. It's like you say, lived to tell. I've lived to tell that there can be other things that are just as been just as much fun if you just accept life on life terms, you know, and just take an action. But when you have you, to when you grab a thought and take an action, you know, and, and faith without work is dead. So, you know, everything that I come up with, you know, when I started putting, getting, I got the tracks back, I finally figured that out, got the legal thing straightened out. And I decided that I wanted to do a compilation album and I was going to call Joey Negro. Listen to this. So I'm saying, I'm sharing with friends. You know what they're saying to me? Oh, he's too important. He's too busy. What would he want to do a Williams project for you? I can't tell you how much negative feedback I got, Lenny. It was nonstop. <laughs> and I, I said, I don't care. What, I don't give a fuck what these people think. Uh, I know that, that uh, Joey Negro sampled cathedrals about 10 years ago. No, years no, no, ago. no, no, no. That's not right. Motor on, on a track called Cathedrals. Uh, everybody. Well, the big one, the big track was that Moto Blanco record that had the That was unaffected, yeah, but this was before that, about four years before that, okay? And uh, I, uh, I, and he paid me, Joey paid me on the sample. And I said to myself, he knows me, he knows cathedrals, he paid me, I'm going to go to him first. And Johnny Jellybean said, he needs somebody like Joey. I asked Johnny about it, and he said, oh, I would love to do it. I would love to do it, but I don't do that anymore. I don't, I'm not a record company anymore. Do you see? I, I've always wanted to remix cathedrals, but you're going to, it's a niche thing, and you're going to have, this is good advice from Johnny Jellybean. He said, who I've been very close with all these years, and he says, he said, you got to, got, it's a niche. And he said, you know, your most important market for that is in London, in the UK. So you got to get a label that does this. He's you right. got a label that does this as a business. He said, because if you get the right company behind it, 
It's going to be very successful. But I couldn't do that. Johnny was honest. He said, I can't do that. I'm living down in Florida. I'm semi-retired. I'm doing gigs. I handle my publishing. He said, you need somebody to handle your publishing, DC? I'll handle it. That was Jelly Bean. So, of course, I don't. But uh, So um, I got my nerve up, and I sent um, uh, Joey an email. I got his email address off the Z Records website. I sent him an email. Hi, Joey. This is DC. You might remember me. Cathedrals. You sampled it for your track, everybody, blah, 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 years ago. Would you be interested? I got the stems, and I gave him a list of all the tracks. So would you be interested in doing a remix project? He was back with me in six hours. You know, the time difference. <laughs> Next morning, he, I opened up my email, and he had sent me an email. Yes. And he sent me an agreement. Two days later, <clears throat> it was fair, honest. I couldn't believe it. No changes. It was 50-50. He split 50-50 with, with me, everything, 50-50. I signed the agreement, and he went to work on the, it took him a year to put the thing together. But Yeah, it does take time to get it right. Oh, please. I would even say to him, Joey, it's been four months. I'm going to die before this fucking thing comes out. He'd say, stay alive. I'm not even close to being finished. So it took him a long time. It took him a long time. I was getting so frustrated. I said, I was saying to myself, is he bullshitting me? Is he really doing this? No. But he came, he did a magnificent, magnificent. Yeah, because you know why? I, we all said he kept the integral parts of it. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He was very true. But, but, you know, he did that and he made it a better record. Now, people say to me, Nikki, oh, nothing will touch the original. I say, Nikki, we, no, I remember when this came out. We had, we went to a movie over here and we went for lunch. I said, Nikki, I said, he's made a better record. What did Nikki say? <laughs> Nikki said, <laughs> Nick said, no, 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 you can't outdo something yeah. that happened that was wonderful. For you as the writer, you're talking about it sonically and production-wise. Oh, it sounds so great. He made, it, he he made it sound better than when I heard it live in the studio. When we sure, because you didn't have the technology back then to make something sound like that. You just didn't, couldn't do it that way. Oh. No way. There was no way to do it like that back then. You're right. So I understand your argument, and I know Nikki's argument. I could have heard Nikki saying, "You no, 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 no." Like yeah. him with the hand like this, no, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. no. That's right. That's how Nikki. If you know Nikki, that's what he would say. No way. No fucking. But way. everybody, everybody agreed with Nikki that Joey did a spectacular job. Hey, um, you heard me play it, and you said to me the same thing when you said he did. A Joe, you know what? Joey got letters from people like Nikki. <laughs> And from, uh, I'm really, Joey actually got emails from all these guys saying, thank you for doing such a wonderful job. Yeah, he did. I said the same yeah, thing. Yeah, and, yeah. But no, I told you, remember I said to you? I said, DC, Dave did a fantastic job on that record. Yeah, he did. He's, such a, he's a talented man. But you ain't seen nothing yet. You got to hear that. <laughs> I keep saying, so no, I'm working with, not, so I'm wait, working with Dr. Packer now. 
There's a couple you know, of projects that you were talking to me about. Yes, Tell indeed. Uh, and I'm very excited about both of them. Both of them, both of them. Now, I got to say, I met Dr. Pat. I didn't know, I, I knew of Greg from his reputation. Very, you know, and he had gotten more famous and more famous and, and hotter and hotter. I mean, last summer and fall, he was the hottest fucking DJ in Europe. And, and bar none, I'm, I really think, but that's my opinion. I got, I know him. So I knew him and I knew his work. I was always impressed. I didn't know him to talk to him or anything. So, but he did, Joey got him to do a remix of Indiscreet for the, for the resurrection. And I really loved the, the, the work he had done. So I took and I sent him a, oh, he was on Facebook. And I sent him a message on Facebook and I said, hi, it's me DC. I just wanted to thank you so much for the magnificent job on, on Indiscreet. I just wanted to say hello. And he got back to me. And we became friends. And we weren't even friends. We, you know, we had to become friends on Facebook. And then, you know, off and on, chit-chit-chatting here and there. And then I sent him, I mean, let's say, right when February, in February, when the pandemic had me isolating and everything. And I said to myself, I had a couple of ideas that I had wanted to do. You know, for, well, my agreement with Joey is that I couldn't do anything with any of the stuff for 30 months. I had gave him a year and a half to sell off. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I was just sitting here thinking, coming up with new ideas, but I couldn't have done anything anyway. So when my 30 months were over, I sent a note to Packer and I said, would you be interested in doing you know, X, Y, Z, A, B, C. And he said, yes. And I said, are you up for this challenge? Because it's a real difficult thing, I suppose. And something that I've had other people try and have uh, failed dismally, just dismal failures. And it's a rough job. It was a rough job. And I said, okay. I said, I guess you have the time. Now. I wrote, you know, I said, I guess you have the time now where you're just isolating with your family in Perth, Australia, you know. And he did. So he said, I sent him all the stuff. And it took him about two and a half months. He also was working on your project. He says, how I know about it. He says, yeah, I'm working on a Lenny's project too. So what he did with these two tracks, just amazing. I'm thrilled beyond belief. Which two tracks is he? Did he ah, I can't tell you. But we did sign, we just signed a deal with Defective. Glitter books. Okay. To release them. So we got a good company back. So does everybody know these classics exist? Or these yes. are brand new records? They're not new records. I don't make records. I don't record new records. And I, why? Why don't you record new records? I told you. I know me. No, you're telling me. Can I tell you at the beginning of the interview about Donna Summer? And, and, and I've seen too many people. They make, and why would you want to, why would I want to record again? If I made the best record, Lenny, what did I say to you? If you and I got into that studio behind you and we made the best fucking record I've ever made in my entire life, hands down, no doubt, and we released it, you know what the response would be? Oh, can you play cathedrals? <laughs> oh, you know, but I really like the like the real thing. It wouldn't matter. And I'm not going to work that hard and invest that much time and creative energy into a project, it would take us a long time. And it's not, 
people, I, we love the work. But what's Papa all this? Is, is, wait a minute. Papa loves his work. Excuse me. Yeah. New record. Daddy loves his work. But it's work, Lenny. It's work. Wait a second. What's I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it because it's going to go and we'll release it. It'll go like a stone in the wait, water. Wait, wait, wait. So let me use a real nice term. What's these cock tease videos I watch of you with the guy with the guitar, him doing a guitar and you're singing last couple of years? What's all that, those recent videos you've been doing? I don't know. I saw a video not too long ago of you singing a guitar player behind you. I thought it was practically a new record. I'm saying. I'm oh, no, no, no. Those are my those are my in-person shows. That was and my guitar player Vladimir. He plays. No, that was a. Did you see the one of me doing my live performance at um, Bowery Electric in February? Yes. Best thing I've ever done. Just, Joey Carvello was there and ran up to the stage after I did cathedrals and picked me up and spun me around and kissed me. He said, "This guy, this guy is so amazing. He's everything." Because he had never seen me perform. I've never performed a lot. You know that, right? I know. We never, I don't remember getting to see. The only time I saw you was when I, I never did. I never performed. Well, there was a reason for it too. Um, Why? Well, when I was a kid, I performed all the time. I was in the school shows and and ran a camera review. And I used to go around to the nursing homes and the orphanages with a group, uh, Castle Craig Players, and I used to sing at all, you know all these charity events. And I had a little, I sang at this little country radio station television station in Waterbury, Connecticut. I did little country songs with my guitar. <clears throat> so I always enjoyed performing, but the, I, I don't, it was like my, my stuff, I don't know, they never wanted to handle me. Jeff Franklin, the head of uh, Premier Talent, said to me, he was handling Rod Stewart and whatever, Barry White. He said, where am I gonna book you, DC? <clears throat> he said, you're disco. He says, the gay clubs only want drag queens. And the straight clubs may love your record, but they don't want to see you. <laughs> he said, your orchestrations are so huge. They're like very white and love them in the orchestra. He said, but you don't have a big enough fan base to fill up the, the Roxy. He said, so what are we going to get? How are we going to promote you? And he was right. And then when I would do record hops, I was always uncomfortable with record hops. I mean, I would do live uh, shows. Um, oh, like at Lips here. When, when Let Them Dance was number one here in New York City, I did a show at Lips out here under the bridge in Queens. Stray Club. The place was jammed. I couldn't move. Jam-packed. Screaming, yelling, screaming, yelling. I couldn't get on stage. I couldn't get off the stage. People were grabbing at me, pushing me, grabbing me. Backstage, I was trying to, I was trying to get myself together. People were pushing into the, into the dressing room. There are a lot of people that may like that. I don't. I really don't. I didn't feel comfortable in that environment. And the other thing, too, is if you're going to perform at a real disco, I don't care what anybody says. Those people don't go there to stop dancing while I come out and sing cathedrals for seven minutes and then go back dancing. I don't like that break in the evening. I don't think. And my act as such, I'm not Grace Jones. I'm not outrageous. I'm not Sylvester. I'm not that electric, exciting in person. I would, I'm like, is that all he is? You know, I go, really? I mean, what? I mean, I'm not going to come out in bell bottoms and, and furs and spangles because that's simply not myself. So people, I, they assume I'm one thing, and then when they see me in the flesh, 
they're not really disappointed, but they're disappointed. And I'm saying, oh, that's, oh, we love you, DC. Oh, but they're disappointed that I'm not what they perceive me to be, whatever the fuck that was. Now, and, and I did performing in, no, and I did performing, a lot of performing in, in, in England. I was at the Lyceum there. I was at the, I was in Paris. I, I was at the, oh, please, what's the name of this? Palace in Paris. I was, I did the Venice Music Festival. Uh, but that was different. That's different there. The Europeans are different. And, uh, but I still didn't do a lot of, I did a lot of television there. And uh, I didn't mind doing television. I just never did it because um, there didn't seem to be an energy behind people wanting to see me perform as much as I would have done it if I felt it, if I felt the feedback. So that's it. I mean, can you put it? The thing is like this. Uh, uh, when the, uh, one of the discos, when the, uh, oh, even Robbie Leslie, dear sweet thing that he's so honest with me, uh, the Palladium was closing and they had, they brought in Sylvester. And <clears throat> Robbie was DJing there and I mentioned to him and he said, they could fill cathedrals, DC, but they certainly couldn't fill the Palladium and you certainly couldn't against Sylvester. But he was right. I mean, can you imagine me coming out, you know, in my suit and whatever, looking very cool and very hip, you know, um, I sometimes even feel like Sinatra and doing a couple of tracks and then comparing me to Sylvester coming out with the feathers and the jewels and the spotlights and the, it wouldn't work. Then it just simply wouldn't work. And I couldn't be that thing. I couldn't be a Casey in the Sunshine Band. I couldn't, so you know, would you I couldn't slip into the bell bottoms and the Nick Dick shirts. Okay, so would never, you say never. like, you know how like Joan Baez and them were folk singers? I would have loved to have done Very yes. smooth, they play guitar. Would you categorize- I would do that today. I would do that today. Disco. In disco, would you categorize yourself as like a Joan Baez, very relaxed? Yes, same thing, same thing. Same thing. Very low energy. Go to the, whoever's watching, go to the YouTube and, 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 and go uh, DC the Rue, uh, Indiscreet, Cathedrals, uh, Bowery Electric, okay? Uh, Mobile Mondays, it'll come up. You know, it's very, very good. I'm very, very good. I, my voice hasn't changed. I'm still singing in the same range. I wish there was a market for it. I've, you know, I had tried with my friend Vladimir, the guitar player. I said, let's just, just do me and you and a guitar and me singing great little songs. Can you, and can you, we, we, can you, we took it over to that place, that club on the, on Second Avenue, First Avenue, no, Avenue A, uh, and because Vlad, Vladimir had played there, and we suggested it, and the guy was totally not, totally not interested, totally not interested, <clears throat> you know. So, and you know, I can't force the people, and who would come? You know, I'm willing to be there. Who do you think is going to come to? See me. Well, pre-pandemic, we all would have came. You know that. But now, <laughs> pandemic. Well, we thank you. You're so sweet. <laughs> I don't think they would have come for you. <laughs> Can you sing the part? I, the say, so listen. Yes. You know, I, if I'm, somebody wants to get together a bass and a, and a drum and a guitar, I'd love to do it. I'd love to do it. I did a, a thing with Vladimir's band at the Rockwood Music Hall. A few years ago, five or six years ago, we did Oh Papa and we did Cathedral. Boy, it was great. I had so much. I, 
I always thought somebody told me that they mentioned that they heard you or that you were at garage and you did it or Larry gave you a microphone to do it or something. Was that true at Paradise Garage? Yes, yes, yes. from the booth. Yeah, yeah. You see, yeah, how do you know that? But it was unannounced. Okay. People were going there to see me. I didn't go down onto the dance floor and with a performance. I was in the booth with Larry. And that's all what I sang along with the record, which is entirely different from what we're discussing. And I want to say, say something because I'm looking at my time. See, that's everybody, enough. everybody, he did perform a garage. I thought so, but he didn't perform but, with the marquee. Way. I, you know, when, when, when Grace Jones did On Your Knees, because I wrote On Your Knees for Grace, and there was a party there uh, that, you know, uh, Keith Haring did all the, the dresses and the outfits. And, and I went into the booth with, with oh, he, he should have been there. He really should have been there. I was in the booth with um, Richie Kazar and David Mancuso and Mickey Ciano and Tom Severis and Tony Smith, you name it. All the big DJs were there in the booth with Larry. And I came in, they all applauded me, which <laughs> was great fun. And I spent the night in the booth with them. And Grace comes on, she's on a roller thing. She's like 18 feet tall. She's like, and they get down like this. And she's going around like this, like this down your knees. She should bobbing back and forth like the, the thing on a, a clock. I, she was wonderful, and it was the biggest thrill, my, one of the biggest thrills of my life. The after party with Grace, that's good. But I don't perform like that at the garage. <laughs> I couldn't perform like that at garage. It would, I would be ridiculous. But one thing about bless that Larry Levin. I got to know Larry through Nikki and Steve Cristo. And when he first opened the garage, we left the loft. David Mancuso and 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 loft and i got into the car with steve had a little volkswagen and with his boyfriend albert and nikki and i and larry and we all spoke into the car because larry wanted to show me the garage so we went over to the garage we all got out of the garage we walked up there and it was before in you know the garage would grow and grow and grow and grow as it got bigger but the initial garage was the co-check in the front you know that right yeah. <laughs> okay that little the room was as big as my apartment right and, and they were just putting down the hardwood floors and they hadn't varnished them yet they hadn't finished them yet and i can remember mel sharon go don't walk on the floor don't walk on the floor no because the hardwood floor can walk on it before it's finished and and uh and larry was setting up the turntables and i was there from the very inception from the, the from the day it opened i was a part of that club and um uh, and I would go, when I would go there, I'd go up to the of Larry. And when I was there, talk about, you talk about the fun times. Okay? This is when I, before I got sober, I, um, I would go to the booth with Larry and I would let him give me anything he wanted to get me high. Pills, smoke, weed, coke, whatever I was sniffing, I don't know, whatever it was. And sometimes, I would get so high. See, this is the other thing. I, he, he was doing as much as I was. He was getting as high as, as I was. Living. How he could turn around and play for three hours is beyond me because I would get so high, I could, was afraid to, to go down the ladder from the right. booth to the floor. And I'd say, how is he playing? And I, and I would go, I'd be so high, I'd go over to one of the big speakers in the corner and I'd crawl into the speaker and listen to the... <laughs> to the yeah, that's how high I was. And Larry would be playing and playing and playing. And I would be leaving, he'd be still playing. 
and I would be so high that I would have to be helped to have. And you know what? I could never figure out how he kept playing, and he, and he was so high. He, I was just as high as he was. How do you do that? <laughs> how do you do it, Lenny? This is amazing. And and Nikki and his two and alls and the second all. <laughs> Right. And nodding out on the fucking table and still being able to play all night long. Did you ever see him do that? I heard you say the other day. Yeah, he's sober now. But I have seen him at the gallery where he'd be spinning and he'd go, head down on the fucking third table. I love them. I love them though. You know, Nikki is a wonderful friend. All these years, all these years, he's having a hard time now as everyone. Oh boy. So let's uh, let's wrap up with this. Joey, Joey Negro said the end. I don't believe it, but I feel so bad. Joey sent me a note. He hasn't worked since March. Joey Negro hasn't worked since March. None of us have. And neither has Greg Packer. Nobody has. Greg, Greg is going to go start a couple of gigs at the end of this month with social distancing. If the disco, I don't know how it's going to work. He's going to let me know. We Nobody is working. And these are people, Lenny, I don't have to say, I'm sorry. These are people with wives and children and family and homes and cars and mortgages who have made this their life and they have no income. And I know I, that. I'm it, living it too. Breaks my, <laughs> breaks my heart. Hold it on. makes me want to cry. It makes me want to cry. I it can't decimate. Think of it. Listen, the pandemic has decimated all the income for everybody who is dependent on restaurants, nightclubs, anything like that. It's been decimated. Letterbox has has canceled everything in, for two years. You know that, right? Mm -hmm. Closed all the departments. Put out all the all the employees, the Letterbox employees, on furlough because there's nothing cooking for another year and a half, two years. Now, who's that again? Say it again. Glitterbox, defective. That's right. Glitterbox. Nothing cooking. Nothing cooking for at least another eighteen months, two years. But all these people, like, he let the entire letterbox staff he put him on furlough. I mean, I got. And then Simon did a tweet on at Twitter. He said he wishes them all the best of luck, and he has, and he has their best wishes. And when they get back on the on the boards, you know, when they're back on, the, and he's gonna hire them all back. But what does that do? What does that do? I mean, I mean, it's wonderful that he feels that way. Well, and the question everybody has is, will there be something to come back to when it's all over? Uh, you know what? That's another good question. And uh, we should be talking about this because it affects us all. I wonder, well, first of all, I'm telling you right now, the disco experience as we have known it is over. Over. Even if they come up with a vaccine, like the flu or the pneumonia, it comes back every year. There's a, there's a, a whole rush of hotspots and everything, it's going to exist. People are going to get careless. They're going to stop wearing masks. They're going to think everything is cool. They're going to start spreading again. This particular virus, the coronaviruses are very difficult. They're different. And so I don't think it's ever going to be the same. I'm going to, I can't wait till Greg gets back with the social distancing. Disco, so, disco social distancing. Uh, excuse me. Hello. What's this all about? Nightclubbing was all it's about, not about but that's not what it's about. It's about shoulder to shoulder communal experience. Yes, okay. you're right. Okay. So now I think that people are not going to be it's it's grown exponentially since it had its downfall. Started cooking again, started coming up the last 10 years, 
Last summer, it was at a peak, at a peak. I had never, it was like, oh my God, oh my, the music, oh my God, oh my God. It was like the 70s again. Huge. I know, I remember. Brooklyn, Brooklyn was slamming. Brooklyn was slamming. A new club every weekend. Jams, lines around the block. <clears throat> okay, now, uh, it's never going to come back like that. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't think America, but I, and I, I think Europe will. Is it ever going to come back? I don't know. Because what it was is impossible to have again. And on that note, we have to thank him. And God bless DC LaRue. He's been through a lot. Still here going strong. And I'm going <laughs> to tell you, and his new projects will be the bomb. We all know that. We oh, we're going to talk about the oldest projects. Oh my God, I'm got three minutes. Yeah. I have a, uh, they have a company that specializes in, in, in doing uh, unacknowledged work of famous people before they got famous. And they came to me about six months ago. And all the stuff I've been doing since 1961, <clears throat> there's a lot of stuff. So they put it all together on a CD. And it's going to be released in about two or three weeks. I would have shown you the artwork, but they're changing it again. But it's it's me and all under all my my configurations and names and and reinventing myself through the years until I got to be. So no teaching the root stuff, just all the stuff for so You coordinated. You coordinated as like an A and R man. Twenty-seven tracks. Oh, and a couple more releases. Who's releasing it? What label? I'll send you the information when it comes up. No, not for me. No, no, no. I'm talking about who. No, well, well, I haven't watched my website. I, see, they got two labels and they can't decide which of the two they're going okay, to put so it out. Okay, so check DC's, check DC LaRue's website for more. My website, my Twitter feed, my Instagram. We're going to talk about it. I'll send you the information for you. Oh, yeah, I'll post it. I'll send it to you. You can post it. You know, Packers already sent me the projects, right? No, I'm joking. He hasn't sent it to me yet. No, I know. <laughs> No, he hasn't sent it to me yet. He mentioned he was working on it, though. He didn't. <laughs> I told him good luck on it. And But you know what, everyone? You know if Pac is working on it. It's going to be Disco 5. Uh, I don't want to oversell it. But I'm going to oversell it. DC, this I, is, I don't want to oversell this, this new mistake. I'll tell you something. It gives me chills. Chili bones. He, there's a, one thing that he did with the baseline on one of the tracks. Every time it starts, I want to scream. Now that's a good sign. I haven't felt that way in years. Every time it starts, I want to do a popper and I scream. <laughs> Did you ever think you would feel that feeling again? No. Thank you. Me if too. You had asked me in 1985. No. I said that's exactly what I was say. Did you ever think in, in 1985, 86? Would you? There's a lesson to be learned here, and <clears throat> as I said earlier, just live each day to its fullest, never lose your, your energies, your dreams, get something going in your head, take an action, because that's the only way it's gonna happen. If I didn't email Joey, those tracks would still be sitting here undone, you know, multi-tracks needing a home. You gotta, you gotta think about it, you gotta go for your creative thing, whether it's carpentry or music or whatever. Project. You gotta have a, Project. you have to have a, you have to visualize it. Oh, that sound like a, <laughs> metaphysical creature or what? <laughs> no, I always say the same thing. If you visualize it, Lenny. Thoughts are things. Take an action on your thoughts. Thoughts are things. Visualize. Take an action. 
Faith without works is dead. You got to move it along. And then once you do it, once you take all the action, you let it go. Knowing that you've done your best. And it will find its own. That's it. Easy to say. Difficult to learn how to do. But once you learn how to do it, it took me years. I'm, it took me years. It's only the last 15 years that I understand this concept. You know, when, when I was a kid, I didn't know what the hell was happening. Conceptually, to get, understand this metaphysical mental thing and uh, in tune with the energies of the universe. Yeah, it's called the it's secret. <laughs> it truly is a secret. Kind of, kind of. But you know, I'll tell you something. The trouble with that book is, is there's a lot of basic truth to it. But the way, you know, but there are no, you see, see, the problem with something like that is it doesn't tell you how important it is to know it. You know, knowing the truth. It's like knowing the truth will set you free. Not telling the truth, Lenny, not telling the truth. You don't have to tell the truth, but knowing the truth about your own potential will set you free. People will read that book and then forget about it the next day. It doesn't work like that. Even though there are a lot of basic principles in that book, you know. Oprah thought she was doing the right thing by promoting that because she understands metaphysically how that works. She's done it most of her life. I got to ask one last question. Older DC speaks to the younger DC. What would he tell him to do differently? Uh, Don't waste so much. Honestly. Don't waste so much time devoting my energies to uh, drugs and sex. I spend an awful lot of time high. An awful lot. I wasn't promiscuous, but I had relationships. I spent an awful lot of times in relationships that became more important than what I was doing with my life. That's the truth. And I say, do you see? Stop your, stop those drugs. Lighten up. Moderation. Moderation is the key. And I think that was, that's the moderation. I would do everything to excess. Even now, Lenny, I can't, I can't buy Two pints of Haagen-Dazs on sale for $5 at the Morton Williams here. I can't buy two pints for $5. I will have them both finished in 45 minutes. And I can't stop myself. So the only way for me to stop myself is to not go there. Gotcha. Not buy the ice cream. And that's the way. That's the way. Because, you know, it, you distract yourself. Don't, I would say, DC, don't distract yourself with so much bullshit. Thinking. I wasted, wasted so much time on negative thinking. Oh boy. Oh, and I still find myself slipping into that niche today, and I gotta take myself back. I gotta say, hey, wait a minute. What are you doing again? That negative shit is thinking and stop you. You have to consciously stop yourself and redirect your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Ain't easy. It's not easy, Lenny. It's a reprogramming factor. It's very hard to reprogram. Oh, yeah, you're right. And they say people can't, people can't change. They can change, but it takes so much fucking hard work that they don't want to put in the effort. They would rather stay as they are. Yes, they can change. I've changed. I have changed so much in the last 40 years for the better. But you know what? Oh, boy, have I suffered through it. And I have worked. And you know what? It takes effort. So people can't. Yes, yes, Lenny, you can change. <laughs> if you want, if you, but you got to. If really you want, want, that's what I mean. You have to want it, and you have to believe that that change can happen. Not to always You're come saying, out with the idea that it ain't gonna but, happen. But you have to believe 
totally, 100%. There can't be one iota, one little part of your being that does not believe it's going to happen. You can't, that, that you have to believe. See, that's hard to do. And, and sustain that belief day after day after day with not seeing any fruition. Very difficult. God bless DC. You're the man. We love you, DC LaRue. <laughs> I think, do you think I should preach? Do you think I should be a preacher? Icon preacher of the disco. And I can fill cathedrals. Honey, I can fill cathedrals with my message. I can fill cathedrals at last. I can fill cathedrals. Write that down, children of the disco. Kisto said, cathedrals are our discos. Cathedrals are the discos of now. Say it again, everyone. Hear that? That's incredible. If any highlight we got, that was like mind blowing. That was Steve wow. D'Aquisto. Mr. Steve D'Aquisto. God bless him. If Nikki's watching this, you heard your name mentioned a thousand times. I'll, I guess online, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, send Jim him Burgess, the may he rest in peace. Oh, I know. Tom Varese is out in the Midwest, retired. Yeah. Yeah, no, we never not, mentioned Tom Moulton. Very poor else. But we very, have to meet Tom Moulton also because he wrote about your record. I didn't know Tom. I don't know Tom. I've never met Tom. I oh, Tom's a, and Vintiletti also wrote about your record in Record World. Good friend. Good friend for many years. We're still Vintiletti's in another big name. Um, so there's been so much disco, and we spoke so much about history of disco, and DC is a part of that history. That's why it's cool. Well, thank you. Well, we've documented a lot today, Lenny. Thank you so much, DC. But next week, we got Tony Lee from Reach Up Era. Tony Lee. And I want to thank you all for tuning in each and every week at 2 o'clock New York City time, 7 o'clock UK time, 8 o'clock European time. You guys can actually share this later. It'll be going up. We're also on YouTube. You can catch any of these wonderful stories. We're putting them up on my page. This thing is growing and we're getting some wonderful people. Yes, DC, you have one last thing you want to say? Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Have Thanks. a good Stay night well. all over the world. And, and don't catch the virus. Don't.